The reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 21 and it's page 21 in the Pew Bibles and it's verses 1 to 7. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We cannot understand the significance of today's short Bible reading about the birth of Isaac until we catch a vision of the grand and breathtaking story of God's plan for mankind as outlined in the Bible. If if God's story for mankind had chapters of a book, there would be four main sections. Firstly, chapter 1, and you turn around the pages and you have unfolding the monumental drama of God's creation. He created everything And at the end of it, he saw that it was, as the Bible put it, all good, all good, perfect. And the pinnacle, the top of his creation was Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. They, they alone, not the animals, but they alone were created in God's image and likeness. There is something of God is in all of us. And they were entrusted with managing and caring for the unblemished world God had created. And you read that in Genesis 1. And, and to live in close relationship with him. And the Garden of Eden where they lived was exactly how it was supposed to be. And so you turn the story to chapter 2. And uh, you find that it did not take long. For the story to turn sour, to take a dark turn, Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God. And you read that in Genesis 3. They disobeyed God and they put themselves, they wanted to be in control of their lives. I will do it my way, much as we do today. And they chose to reject God's commands and their disobedience put them into a state of sin. Now what the Bible means sin is not just the disobedience of God's word, but rejecting God's love and not to love him with our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength. They rejected God's rule over them and they and all creation spiraled into a cycle of unbreakable sin, decay and corruption and they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. Things had changed forever. Adam and Eve were no longer in a right relationship with God. 
or with each other, or with the rest of creation. Over and over again, the Bible reminds us that all have sinned. That means rejected God's love for them and fallen short of the glory that God created them for. Immorality, bloodshed, pain, human anguish and destruction entered the world. And we can see in all our world today, we can see in our marriages, in our family relationship, in our relationship with our neighbours, in the relationship between countries, all because humanity thought it knew better than God. I'll do it my way. And this event is what the theologians call the fall. And then you turn to chapter 3, and, and it's redemption time. And I'll explain the word in a minute. You and I know that we are incapable of solving the problems of the world. Human beings are incapable un of undoing the effects of sin. We desperately need someone outside to come and save and help us. And God is gracious. Immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, our wonderful and wonderful gracious God promised to send someone to redeem or save mankind from their sins. And you read that in Genesis 3. What is to redeem? To redeem someone is to secure another person's release from oppression, harm, sin and enslavement. It is to free a slave, put it another way. A redeemer will pay whatever price is required to set that person free. That's what a redeemer does. To buy back that person's lost rights and freedom. Whatever it costs. And so this pivotal person in human history, the one who is going to come from beyond us, is Jesus Christ, the Redeemer and Saviour of the world, as the Bible calls him. He would pay or redeem the price to release us from sin's bondage through his death on the cross and his resurrection. He took the guilt of our sins upon himself and suffered the penalty of what we deserve. Three days after his burial, Jesus rose again. Sin and the kingdom of darkness have been defeated. We have been released from bondage, though we still live in a sin-broken world. And then the final chapter of God's grand story, Restoration. The grand story concludes with God at some point in the future when he will restore everything that is broken now back to its original state. Because of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, humanity and all creation will eventually be restored to what it was before. But before that day, before that time, before that final event, something else will happen. Jesus is coming back as king and judge, not as the little babe in the manger. No, as the powerful judge. And we will all, if we are dead by then, we will rise to meet with him. But if we are still alive when he comes back, 
we will be caught up to meet with him and we will stand before his throne not nation by nation not race by race not family by family not couple by couple but one by one to give an account of how we live our lives those who have not trusted in Jesus will be removed from his presence to an eternity without God where there will be no more justice, no more righteousness, no more laws, no more morality, no more the presence of God. But every person who, who has trusted in Jesus will enjoy God's favour and live under his blessings forever. Not because we are good. No, we are not better than, than anyone else. But because God is good and we are his chosen people, only in this important sense that we are chosen to be obedient to him, to be a witness to him, and most importantly, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And on that day of on the day of restoration, sin and its consequences will be removed forever. And we catch a glimpse of this if you turn the Bible to the last book, Revelation, from Genesis to the last book. Revelation, you read this. And this is the Apostle John seeing all these visions which he can't truly comprehend, but he saw this. He said this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated at the throne said, I am making everything new. This is the promise to believers in Jesus Christ and it can be yours today if you put your faith in him. What a great and wonderful story, but also fearsome, isn't it? We will never understand life or its purpose or its meaning until we see God's great plan for us and how we are to fit into this. So you think, well, we have just read about Abraham and Isaac today. Well, well, how, how do they fit into this grand scheme of God? And this is when the big picture of God moves into a major historical subplot. Jesus, who is God and man, cannot just appear out of nothingness. The Bible is not a fairy tale where things just appear from nothingness. He had to come from somewhere. And God chose the people, the Hebrews, not only to be his witness to the world, but through whom the promised Saviour Jesus Christ would come. 
And God this, did this by calling a man from where is uh, southern Iraq today. He called a man named Abraham of Ur, the city of Ur, of the Chaldees, to an unknown land where God will make him the father of a mighty nation, a mighty people. We read that in Genesis 12. God gave him two important promises. Firstly, his descendants would become a great nation. And to reflect this promise, God changes Abraham's name. Abraham means uh, exalted father to Abraham, which means father of many. Second promise, through his descendant, all nations, the entire world would be blessed. And we shall see the significance of that promise. There was, however, only one tiny little problem with this as far as Abraham was concerned. He was now 75 years old and childless. His wife Sarah is infertile. She's barren. She cannot give birth to a child. And she was 66 years old, long past the age of pregnancy. Where were his descendants going to come from? But he trusted God nonetheless. So after a few years without anything happening, Abraham tried to help God along. My earth is saying, how we want to just help God along a little bit. He tried to adopt a male servant as an heir. In Genesis 15, we read that in the Near East, a childless man could adopt one of his own male servants to be an heir and guardian of his estate. God said, no. You will have a son. So, ten years after the initial promise, nothing happened. Abraham was 85 years old. Sarah, 76. She still had not conceived. So, once again, they decided to help God along. This time by surrogate motherhood. Abraham, at the instigation of Sarah, slept with her maidservant Hagar, who gave birth to a son, Ishmael. And that is another interesting story which we'll, we won't go to now. But again, this was not God's plan. So the years rolled by. Abraham was now 99 years old and Sarah 90 years old. They had all but given up. But God again came to him and repeated his promise of a multitude of nations coming from him. God reassured him and Sarah that Sarah would produce a son. Abraham laughed to himself in momentary disbelief. Genesis 17, we read that. But not long afterwards, God again visited Abraham and repeated his promise. A son will be born to Sarah the following year. This time, Sarah, who overheard the conversation uh, uh, between Abraham and God, she laughed in disbelief, thinking to herself that she was too old to have sex, let alone be pregnant. The angel of the Lord was not too pleased with this and asked Abraham, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And then it happened. The grand picture of God narrows down to the pivotal subplot of the birth of Isaac, as we read today. After 25 years of waiting, 
the promise of God was finally fulfilled. Sarah, 91 years old, infertile, produced a child with an even older husband who was 100 years old. The miracle child, Isaac, was finally born. So in our reading we read today, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God has spoken to him. God keeps his promises. Nothing is impossible with God. He's not compelled to act in accordance with our timing or the way we want our prayers to work out. How often have we, have we prayed and feel disappointed with God? His, he knows best. We on our part are to trust Him. God is wise beyond all measure. Verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Isaac means he laughs. Remember how Abraham laughed in disbelief? God had a sense of humor when he instructed Abraham to call his son Isaac. You laugh, okay, he laughs. So in due course, Isaac had a son called Jacob, which meant deceiver, and that's another interesting story. But after an encounter with an angel of God, God changed Jacob's name to Israel, which means one who struggles with God. This is the name by which God's chosen people were called, the Israelites. Israel, previously called Jacob, had 12 sons, who became the heads of 12 tribes of Israel. And we read that in Genesis 49, one of which is Judah. Judah. So we move from the Old Testament, the first book, Genesis, and then we move to the first book of the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew, which is basically 14 generations on from Abraham's to about 2,000 years later, we read in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus, the lineage of Jesus, the ancestry of Jesus. I won't read everything except just a few verses. It says this in Matthew 1, This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. And then on and on and on and on and on it goes until it ends with Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. The Messiah means the anointed one. And there's another wonderful story uh, to preach on that. But the Greek form of it is Christ. So, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Every Christmas we read from Gospel of Luke, again the genealogy of Jesus, this time traced backwards from the mother instead of from the father down. So we read, I won't read the whole bit, whole of it, 
but just this. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was a son, so he was taught, because he came through virgin birth. Of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of this, and the son of that, and the son of that. And it go on, goes on and on and on back until we read the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. This is the significance of the birth of Isaac recorded in the reading today. Jesus was a direct descendant of Abraham and Isaac, the promised child. This shows the sovereignty and the faithfulness and the graciousness of our God. He keeps his promises. No one can undo his plan for mankind. Jesus is the key to the restoration of mankind from enmity with God to relationship with God and adoption into his family. So how do you fit into this grand scheme of God? The grand story of God's plan finally falls into the last subplot down to you and me. To those who have already put their Christ in Jesus, uh, put their trust in Jesus Christ, Paul the Apostle in the New Testament says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Christians are Abraham's spiritual descendants. We are God's children and his chosen people. in that we have been entrusted the message, we have been chosen for this wonderful privilege of sharing his message to the entire world. So the Christian who hides the gospel within himself and not shared with others, this is sheer dereliction of duty. The great story of God, we the Church of Christ, are to present it to the world. In the Gospel of John, we read this, But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Church of Christ is now God's blessing to the world, his witness. We must share the good news of Jesus, the central figure of God's plan for mankind. And people sometimes say to Christians, well, keep your message to yourself, it's personal. But with this grand, wonderful story, how can we keep it to ourselves if we really care for others? What about those who have not yet believed and trusted in Jesus? So today, I standing in front of you here. We, the Church of Christ, meeting everywhere in the world, proclaim to you this message from God. God loves you. He created you to know Him personally. He has a plan for your life, a great plan to give you meaning and purpose and hope. Not only in this short life, but in the life to come. St. Augustine, a famous Christian in the medieval ages, says this, You have made us 
for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We may try to fill our lives with all that we regard as important to our self-esteem, self-fulfillment and personal happiness. Yet there will always be something lacking. Even those who have the almost perfect marriage will find that there is still something missing there. Those who have the perfect family, if such exists, will find that there is still something missing. Those who have the perfect job, so it seems, will always feel that there is still something missing because there is a cry-shaped vacuum in our hearts, in our deepest longing. C.S. Lewis, who is best known for his series of seven short fiction books, The Chronicles of Narnia, which have sold over way over 100 million copies in 40 languages, said this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world, the world with God. A glimpse of it now, but in the future, a world where there are no more tears, no more sorrow, no more sin. In the grand scheme of God and the history of mankind, Jesus Christ is central. He died for our sins on the cross to set us free. He alone can reconcile you and I with God and be part of His story. Jesus Himself said, and I end with this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humbled in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Peace with God and peace with Christ. Uh, peace, peace with God and peace with self comes through Christ and only through Him. Amen.